Section 19 of the Empresses of Constantinople. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Maria Marabe. The Empresses of Constantinople by Joseph McCabe. Chapter 13, Part 1. A Breath of Chivalry. Our last chapter introduced the chivalry of the West into the East and as numbers of the princes of the west remained instead of principalities in the east and mingled with it in matrimonial alliance the hope may be entertained that at last we shall witness some signal alteration of the greek character the more informed reader who knows how the severe historians of recent times have washed much of the colour from the days of chivalry whose acquaintance with that epoch extends beyond the idols of the king will perhaps not expect any transformation of the character of the east i will not anticipate the verdict we have reached a time when the ideas and sentiments of the western knights make a marked impression on the minds and ways of the east and it will be interesting to see what types of women now arise i shall therefore not confine myself rigidly in this chapter to those women who are fortunate enough to attain the supreme title but include in the survey a number of princesses who in various ways approach the throne john the handsome as the citizens of constantinople came to call the dark and by no means handsome young emperor they had now obtained does not provide us with an empress of distinct or interesting character his wife irene a daughter of ratislav king of hungary was too virtuous to leave a mark in the byzantine chronicles while her able and upright husband flung back the invaders from his territory and essayed such improvement in its condition as his poor political faculty enabled him to achieve she spent her days in prayer and the rearing of her family pearls and diamonds had no dangerous fascination for her she maintained a modest demeanour in the pomp of the palace and gave the superfluous wealth to the poor and the monks after bringing five children into the world she died about six years after her coronation and john remained a widower for the twenty further years of his arduous and exemplary reign in the winter of eleven forty two to eleven forty three as he spent the truce from campaigning and hunting in asia minor he accidentally poisoned himself with an arrow nominated his youngest son manuel for the succession and died a few days afterwards of his four sons two alexis and andronicus had died before their father two isaac and manuel survived Manuel was in the field with his father, and he at once sent to Constantinople his father's able Turkish minister to secure the throne for him, while he remained to care for and convey the royal remains. The Turk was vigorous and not unfamiliar with Byzantine history. Before a soul in Constantinople had heard of the emperor's death, he lodged the elder son, Isaac, in a safe monastery, promised an enormous sum of money to the clergy, and had the path to the throne lined with subservient courtiers when Manuel arrived a shower of gold upon the city completed the preparation and manuel i a tall handsome vigorous and fairly cultivated youth took in hand the reins of the empire the spirit of western chivalry had found an apt people in manuel and his robust frame reckless daring and fiery passions made him at once a brother of the crusaders and their eastern descendants for generations men told of his feats of strength and boldness his first empress was the daughter of the Count of Sulzbach, an important Bavarian noble, and sister to the wife of Conrad, the ruling emperor of Germany. Bertha had been betrothed to Manuel before the death of his father, 
and some time after his coronation she was conducted from the humble castle of her father to the world-famed splendor of constantinople her name was to be changed to irene and she must have had a momentary shudder when an aged lady whose dark nun's robe was faintly edged with royal purple and gold was introduced to her among the welcoming crowd as the great irene who had once occupied the throne but the impression was effaced by the brilliance of the marriage ceremonies and the manly beauty of her imperial husband he returned at once to the field and spent a considerable time in expelling the persian invaders after that he remained a few years in his capital attempting to reform the court and the administration and the royal spouses came to know and probably dislike each other manuel had the vices as well as the virtues of a western knight irene had no vices and her virtues were old-fashioned the emergence of these modest and tender young women such as the last two irenes from the courts of central europe warns us to refrain from thinking that chivalry everywhere meant gaiety and license of conduct irene had no love of luxury or of the breaking of lances such comeliness as she had she declined to adorn with perfumes and fine silks placing her ideal in the practice of church virtues and the quiet performance of a mother's duties but manuel had the eye and the blood of unrestrained youth and he soon wandered from his cold and passive spouse to other women of the court his elder brother andronicus had left three fascinating daughters and two of these were of a temper to welcome the freer and livelier spirit which manuel encouraged the eldest of the three maria confined herself to a sober marriage but theodora became the acknowledged lover of the emperor her uncle and the youngest eudocia was even more flagrantly connected with the emperor's cousin andronicus one of the most handsome most daring and most unscrupulous nobles of the time andronicus who in time ascended the throne will engage us with his lady-loves presently for the moment we have only to note that the Comneni princesses lived at court without pretence of restraint manuel frowned when he heard that his cousin met what little expostulation was made with the cheerful assurance that he felt it his duty to imitate the example and copy the taste of his sovereign but manuel had himself too little self-control to dismiss theodora the clergy were at the time too corrupt and subservient to interfere and the courtiers are contemptuously dismissed by the historian finlay as a herd of knaves the chief minister a keen financier and most successful extortioner was known to sell in the market even two or three times over the choice fish or game which suitors presented to him the favorite minister john Kamateros, was a handsome man of gigantic stature who enjoyed the repute of drinking more wine and retaining a clearer head than any man of his time he won a bet off the emperor by emptying at two draughts an immense porphyry vase full of water such were the character and pursuits of the court into which the virtuous irene had entered and in which she remained a silent and despised figure for fourteen years the second crusade led by her brother-in-law conrad passed through constantinople on its way to destruction without altering her condition Manuel was not less unwilling than his people to cheat the despised Westerners, and further seeds of bitterness were sown in the soil of the time. Irene lingered on for some years, while Manuel waged his endless campaigns against Sicilians, Servians, Scythians, and Turks, or flung himself into hunts and tournaments for the entertainment of his mistress and her friends. Then, about the year 1158, Irene died, leaving a young daughter, a second daughter having died in infancy, to the care of her boisterous spouse. For his second wife, Manuel turned to the Latin nobility who had settled in Syria. During a recent campaign in the east, 
he had joined with the latins in a tournament at antioch and made a deep impression on them by his personal bravery the golden trappings of his charger and the embroidered silk tunics and mantles of his suite he begged baldwin the third king of jerusalem to choose for him a bride among the latin nobility and professed that he would abide by baldwin's choice baldwin selected melisend sister of raymond count of tripoli on the phoenician coast and legates were sent to obtain the ready consent of her father and inquire carefully into the lady's morals and physical condition the sad story of melisend's disappointment is very differently told by the greek and the latin historians according to the eastern writers melisend passed the test of manuel's legates and for some months the city of tripoli was enlivened by the preparations for exalted marriage the most splendid clothing plate and jewels that the family and principality of raymond could provide were contributed to her trousseau and no less than twelve large galleys laden with her treasures lay beside the imperial trireme at the quays the day of departure came and the princess bade farewell to her proud relatives but the ships had not advanced far from port when melisend became so ill that they were forced to return she recovered and they set sail again but the mysterious illness returned and as often as they attempted to convey her across the seas she became livid with sickness or burning with fever the legates then made a closer inquiry of a local soothsayer found that there was a grave flaw in the genealogical tree of the princess and departed without her there is no doubt that this story is a malignant untruth published by the greeks in order to cover the heartless vacillation of their emperor the latin historian of the time in the east william of tyre tells a simpler story manuel's legates lingered at tripoli month after month until raymond angrily asked them to either to convey his daughter or refund the cost of the preparations they then fled secretly offering no reason whatever for the desertion and the only consolation afforded to the wounded melisend was that her father handed over her twelve bridal galleys to a band of pirates and sent them to spread their terrible ravages along the greek coasts and islands we know little of melisend she may have been a woman of mature years and one of the most lamentable signs of the abandonment of the times was the eagerness of monarchs and nobles for child brides manuel had discovered a child of ravishing beauty in the court of antioch maria daughter of raymond of poitou the prince of antioch must have been in her early teens when manuel's legates reported her beauty to him her mother constance and stepfather reginald of chatillon a french adventurer eagerly welcomed the alliance of the powerful manuel and the young girl was conveyed on a gilded galley to constantinople and married to manuel in or about eleven sixty one with the utmost splendor she received the imperial title but she naturally escapes the notice of chroniclers during the next ten years and we may assume that manuel continued to entertain his more mature niece who bore him a son and was rewarded with one of the most luxurious palaces in the city Crept as constantinople was an illegitimate son could not hope to wear the purple and manuel was concerned about the succession he betrothed his daughter maria daughter of irene to the younger brother the king of hungary but six years later maria retired to the porphyra palace and manuel a keen student in astrology consulted the heavens with feverish anxiety the conjunction of the planets was auspicious at the hour of delivery the child proved to be a son and heir and the wildest rejoicing filled the court and city from that time maria became mistress in reality as well as name and theodora passes from the chronicles the hungarian prince who awaited his marriage and elevation in the court 
was wedded to Philippa of Antioch, and the nobles were summoned to swear allegiance to Maria and the infant Alexis. The Princess Maria, Manuel's daughter, was now thrust aside as of no political importance, and was suffered to continue celibate and sad at the court until the leisure of old age permitted her father to reflect on his neglect of her. Ten further years of warfare occupy the chronicles, and leave no room for the mention of princesses and empresses. Then the tireless and restless monarch begins to show signs of age, and we prepare for the crisis which so frequently brings the imperial woman more prominently before us. Manuel's last campaign had been overcast by grave disasters. He had lost the vigor of youth, and had never possessed any large and orderly power of controlling events. Weary and saddened, he concluded an indecisive peace with the Turk, and returned to ensure the succession to the throne. His legitimate son Alexis was now, in the year 1180, turned twelve years old, and, therefore, in view of the political circumstances and the lax feeling of the time, fit for marriage. Some years before, Manuel had learned from one of the crusaders that Louis of France had a beautiful young daughter, and legates were sent to ask her hand for Alexis. One reads with strange feelings that the child was only seven years old when, in the spring of 1180, she was wedded to Alexis in the ancient palace of Daphne. We shall see to what assorted fate this premature marriage to a helpless boy exposed her. From the Latin writers, we learn that her name was Agnes, but it seems to have been changed to Anna, as the Greeks always call her, at her marriage. She at once received the imperial title, and must have seemed a strange young figure in the stiff gold cloth garments and rich root jewels of a Byzantine empress. It is interesting to notice that the thought of matrimony reminded Manuel of his celibate and sad daughter Maria. She was now in her thirty-first year. A spouse was found for her in a handsome seventeen-year-old western youth, Rainer, son of the Marquis of Montferrat, and they were married with pomp at the Blackernai Palace. But the character of Maria will presently become clearer to us, and we shall see that it does not call for sympathy. Weary and ill as Manuel was, he had by no means the idea that he was preparing for death in making these arrangements. The astrologers, in whom he put supreme confidence, assured him that he would yet live fourteen years, and he looked forward to rising from his bed, and once more dashing with lance and sword against the Turks or Persians. A few months spent in his capital must have shaken his confidence. Thirty-five years of strenuous war had added no material security to his empire, and had alienated his subjects. Vast sums had been wrung from them, but they had passed into the purses of soldiers, foreigners, monks, and astrologers, and the civil framework of the vast empire was in a state of decay. Men spoke with bitterness of the superb palaces, their ceilings plated with gold, their walls lined with mosaic representations of the emperor's victories, which Manuel had added to the imperial town. He grew somber, his illness increased, and, one day in September, he felt his own pulse and concluded that he was sinking. Impetuous to the last, he slapped his thigh and called for the robe of a monk. He at once exchanged his purple for the rough cloth, gave his signature to a condemnation of astrology, and bade farewell to the world. He died a few days later, and the shadow of tragedy began to creep over the gold-roofed halls in which his young widow and the child bride of his son played with the imperial toys, while men looked on with dark and selfish designs. The character of the Empress Maria is obscured for us by the somewhat conflicting reports or suggestions of the authorities. 
Finlay says that she at once retired to a monastery, and, although I can find no direct authority for this, she is so frequently named Seen in later passages that one may conclude that she took the veil and changed her name. The next statement about her, however, is little in accord with this. The central and most powerful person at the court after the death of Manuel was Alexis, brother of the sisters Theodora and Eudocia, whose amours had enlivened the court. Now advanced in years, but ambitious, covetous, and luxurious, he became the virtual ruler of the empire. A somewhat repulsive picture is drawn of his efforts to maintain himself in sufficient health to enjoy the sensual rewards of his position, and it is added that he contracted a liaison with Manuel's young widow. We are quite free to reject this sordid suggestion, as a calumny of those who sought to displace her or of those who afterwards murdered her, but it must be recollected that we have arrived at a period of grosser immorality than ever. It is essential only to observe that she was closely allied to Alexis, the minister, and was accused of intimacy with him. The emperor Alexis, who was only thirteen years old at his coronation, was a flippant and heedless boy. The base and astute intriguers about him encouraged him to spend his time in hunting, or drinking, or dressing in imperial finery. On the other hand, his sister Maria, the daughter of Manuel, now began to display a dangerous ambition and an unscrupulous character. The supposed intimacy of the Empress and Alexis alarmed her. She feared, or affected to fear, that Alexis would marry Maria and seize the throne. She therefore conspired with her relatives, and sent assassins to make an end of Alexis, as he hunted in the country. Presently, however, a messenger returned, not with the head of the minister, but with the news that he had discovered the plot and was returning to wreak his vengeance. Maria and her young husband fled to St. Sophia, and as the crowd gathered in the church at the news, she loudly and bitterly harangued them on the scandalous vices of the empress and the licentious dotage of her uncle. A judicious distribution of money opened the ears of the clergy and the mob to her charges, and she grew bolder. When the emperor, or his minister, Threatened to drag her from the church, she enlisted a troop of Italian gladiators and Iberian soldiers, and, before the clergy could follow her furious proceedings, turned the cathedral into a fortified citadel and egged on the mob to loot the mansions of Alexis and his friends. On 7th May, the troops issued from the palace, and a bloody battle was fought at the entrance to St. Sophia, but the horrified clergy now intervened, and Maria and her husband were allowed to return in safety to the palace. End of section 19